All right, everybody. Welcome to episode nine of the Journeyman Podcast. Uh, we're joined today with myself, Kyle Sampson, Andrew Zisk, and Grant Schwalbe. Today, our guest is going to be Oakland, California's own Dennis Aguirre. Um, if you guys have not heard of Dennis, he's a remarkable wealth of knowledge of the fire service when it comes to uh, hose and water supply. We get to have a really good conversation about stuff ranging from critical thinking to master streams to, you know, friction loss and everything in between. Uh, I think one of the biggest things people have issue with Dennis is they get really wrapped up in how intelligent and how smart he is. Um, you know, I know myself for his articles, I have to read them eight times to really kind of get the gist of it. The biggest thing we want you guys to take away, um, don't get wrapped up in the weeds. He, he, he starts off with very simple explanations that everybody can kind of understand, goes into his reasoning and the explanation behind it, and always, always follows it up with a nice, succinct, easy-to-understand kind of wrap-up. Um, so if you need to go back and listen to what he's saying, get it a couple times. There's a couple times he goes into some uh, calculations. You'll hear those um, in, in the podcast. You know, go ahead, but you don't need to. He's going to finish it up and kind of tie it all back into each other, um, kind of like what Aaron did in his podcast um, a few episodes ago. It all comes back together in the end. So I think we all had a really good time uh, talking uh, with Dennis. I think we're going to have him on again. Um, hit on some other stuff, some other questions that we had, but I think you guys will uh, will enjoy this. So without further ado, here's episode nine. All right, Dennis, welcome to the show. Uh, why don't you give us just a little heads up on where you're from and how you got started in the fire service? Um, I started in the fire service uh, around 1993. Um, I, I wanted to be a firefighter for some reason since I was uh, probably uh, – uh, elementary school. There's no fire service history in my family. There's a military history. Um, it was kind of the way I chose to serve my community. Uh, I've, I've worked for uh, uh, state uh, CDF, now called Cal Fire, uh, a small county, Kings County, and then uh, the majority of my time uh, I spent in the uh, city of Oakland. Uh, I had a uh, forced uh, injury retirement about 10 years ago. So my line career is only about uh, 16 years. Um, I wanted to continue on in the fire service in a, in a impactful way. So I, uh, I uh, chose something that in my department I thought was uh, lacking in training, you know, pump operations, stream application and handline nozzles. And I was pretty much a handline and nozzle instructor, both in, in, in Oakland, the other two apartments, and also at a uh, community college. So I, I just kind of focused in one area. Um, you know, I had the basic knowledge and understanding of uh, of uh, truck company stuff like ropes and uh, ladders and stuff like that. But uh, I really found uh, the a passion for water movement and water application. So. Um, I helped a few fire departments around here after I was hurt. They were buying nozzles and hose and uh, specking rigs. And uh, one chief uh, said, hey, man, you should uh, you should have charged us. You, know, you basically, you know, saved us a ton of money, blah, blah, blah. He wrote a letter that basically stated that and said, uh, 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 maybe you should consider, you know, trying to go at this as a company. So uh, I went ahead and took his advice. And that was uh, about seven years ago and I've been pretty much you know I've, I've done work in Canada uh, I've done work on the east coast the west coast uh, uh, 
the center of the country. So I've been I've been pretty much ever everywhere. I've made connections in Australia and Europe. I might I might even do some work off off the continent. So um it, it's pretty uh humbling and I, I really appreciate the support of everybody out there uh that uh takes the message seriously about uh water movement and tries to improve uh every day. So that's basically in a nutshell the last uh what's that twenty 25 years so um that's it uh it's cal gave me a a note here talk about time in oakland and how they operate you know when i got there the alarm was very light for a residential structure fire it was just uh, two engines a ladder company and a chief um uh, i spent the majority of my career on the east end of the fire department but i did do uh lieutenant basically in central oakland on a rig that was due to all second alarms so i uh i i got to be first due second alarm engine a lot because you could just cheat your way over because you knew you're going to be on the box uh, and it was pretty much condoned for station 16 to do that and uh, daryl liggins was also at that station on a different shift uh, it was a very good place it had a, a very senior captain named jim delacy there that was a very good mentor uh, then i promoted the captain i got downtown um, i did a couple years down there before i was injured um, and uh, downtown was a different game, very humbling experience. You know, this this uh, this podcast is called the Journeyman Podcast, and if you if you look up in the dictionary what a journeyman is, it it sounds pretty uh, uh, pathetic as far as a de- definition. A worker or a sports player who is reliable but not outstanding, or the historical thing is a trained worker who is employed by someone else. But if you look at a trade. You know, a journeyman is a skilled worker who has successfully completed an official apprenticeship qualifying in a building trade or craft. You know, the firefighting is kind of a craft. Journeymen are considered competent and authorized to work in that field as a fully qualified employee. They earn their license by education and supervised experience. So when I got downtown, I was a captain. Um, you know, it was, it was a, you know, humbling experience. Buildings are bigger. You know, I had tunnels and underground. So uh, I had a senior lieutenant at my station, uh, a guy named JP Troy. And basically that Lieutenant was my supervisor as a captain, as far as I was concerned, uh, down at station 12, because he far exceeded, uh, downtown journeyman experience. than I did. So I was hoping to, uh, achieve the level of expertise that, that he had. So, um, I think the podcast name is fairly interesting, uh, the journeyman concept, you know, so in your career, you can achieve journeyman in a department the size of Oakland in certain areas, but it doesn't mean you're journeyman across the entire city. So, uh, uh, and that's okay. Some people stay in their firehouses and uh, and work their whole career and really serve that area and that still district and that jurisdictional infrastructure uh, to the highest level. And, uh, you know, other people move around a bit and maybe are more jacks of all trades. So, uh, so I appreciate the title of the podcast uh, and the complexity of, of what a journeyman really is. Um, so yeah, that's about all I'll say about Oakland. Um, other than these other two facts, their alarm size did increase. It uh, went to three engines in one truck. I still consider it kind of a truck light alarm. They've done some experimenting rate lately to go four and two. 
but it's only a seven ladder company department and 24 engines and it's fairly busy so you can run out of ladder companies uh, pretty quickly. Um, it does fluctuate in fire duty up and down based on socioeconomic conditions probably. Uh, there was in the in the uh, late 90s, there was a really uh, busy period. Um, I got to partake in some of that um, uh, as a ladder company member. So mainly either tillering or being the irons on a four-person truck. The three downtown trucks were uh, five-person trucks, which I always kind of understood. It was more complicated down there, but the busier trucks pretty much ran with four people. Um, the high-rise box was uh, six engines and uh, two ladders and two chiefs on the initial. And then uh, it was almost a duplicating alarm on the second. Uh, we didn't really have a high-value box. Uh, we should have. There were some apartment buildings that would get an additional uh, engine, but not an additional ladder. So, you know, I know that they've been working on that over the last uh, seven years, but having my company and traveling around to similar uh, cities with jurisdictional infrastructure that is, is, uh, is a semi match to Oakland. I believe that their alarms are typically way more heavy resource than what we got in Oakland. So it's two sides of the coin there, you know, in a selfish way, we definitely got more work per person on a fire and a non-selfish way, you know, a large fire department should be trying to do stuff simultaneously on the fire ground and not sequential. And there were certain things in Oakland that, you know, had to be done sequentially that weren't done simultaneously that I think similar size communities get done in a sim simultaneous method. Um, Oakland was incredibly focused on uh, pulling line and getting water flowing. So I think they, they, uh, they got the benefit of that uh method uh to, to quickly extinguish room and content fires but like most fire departments if uh it goes from floor origin to building of origin to block of origin you know as as your experience on the fire ground goes down you know not a lot of people in oakland see fire past room of origin now you got floor origin still pretty good there's some spread but there's probably you know, less people with experience of that. Then you get building of origin, which, you know, happens every now and then, but not often in Oakland because it's a small city. It's only about 58 square miles. There's 24 engine companies. There's usually an engine on scene within five minutes. Pretty much in Oakland, you're just going to immediately pull hose as the first engine. There's not a big effort because of the blocks and natures of the building. There's not a huge effort to get a 360. You know, they get three sides. That's kind of for the ladder company. Um, the first engine is pretty much uh, marching orders is to get a critical flow at the seat. So um, um, that's a good benefit. But when, once you get past building of origin, and I've been to a few wind-driven conditions, uh, we had a fire around 2001 that was in a sticked out like four-story building uh, that ended up throwing huge fire browns. And the first arriving company had had that on fire, they struck a second immediately. The battalion chief leaving station one called all hands. So we had all 24 engines and seven ladders going and we had 12 Victorian structures on fire probably within like a four block radius of the fire. And they were assigning divisions by street numbers and they ordered five strike teams of engines. They ordered an additional 25 engines to the city. 
So it's a wood city. Uh, fire spread is a very big problem. It's going to be really ugly when there's an earthquake. Uh, you know, I think the west end of Oakland and San Francisco could could replicate something that that was seen in like 1906. We could we could lose a large chunk of urban California and the Bay Area during an earthquake because fire spreads just so so aggressive. So that was one of the, my wake up calls about you know movement of water. Um, I think I was a fairly new engineer at that fire and I had two hydrants pulled in my rig and I realized right away I was moving a lot more water than 1500 gallons a minute. And uh, that's one of the things that struck me curiosity wise to focus on this stuff a lot more. Uh, and then a couple years before there was a line of duty death, uh, Tracy Toomey. Um, well was cited as a contributing factor kind of way down on the list it was a floor collapse um some outside experts said maybe we should have pulled larger hand lines which i agree with and and uh but the main main issues there is the the building had been modified the floor had been weakened uh you look at something that's like your best friend so we had these buildings in oakland that were basically true dimensional lumber um, a lot of them are balloon framed. Uh, they're very tough buildings. You know, you can, you can, they're like a Timex watch. They take a licking and keep on ticking. You know, you can have a fire in that building in 1940, and then you can have a fire in that building in 1955, and then you can have a fire in that building in the 70s, and then, you know, 20 years later, you can have a fire in that building in the 90s, and it's still the same building. It just gets, it just gets repaired. You know, the building stock, that traditional, wood framed heavy beam uh uh old lumber buildings basically get fixed you know so uh it was very shocking i wasn't at the incident to hear of a lean-to floor collapse in uh, a building like that that uh is kind of like your old familiar friend so it's it takes many things to go wrong for there to be a line of duty death way down on the list they said you know should have pulled larger hose, you know, it, it, it was more of a commercial fire on the first floor. From that little point, that's where I inserted myself because the pump chart had some inaccuracies in it. Jay Camello wrote an article called, uh, uh, it was like handline selection for your fire department. I, I think I got the title wrong. And uh, I basically was a, a fairly new member and Jay had been a firefighter for a while. I thought he kind of had a good little project going so we I inserted myself into that project on the pump operation side because I was an engineer before I came to Oakland and uh, that just was like an onion we just kept pulling layers back our pump charts are wrong the gauges didn't read right on the rigs we had a mixed nozzle fleet um, and and as we went on it started to become very apparent that you know typically we we're only flowing between you know, as low as 80 or 70 gallons a minute, usually around 100 gallons a minute, rarely over 100 gallons a minute. And uh, uh, we we had the support of the operations chief and chief of department to uh, buy new equipment. And we didn't want to do it incorrectly because the fire service equipment has tremendous duty cycle. So like if you if you buy a hose that you don't like, you're gonna have it for 10 years. If you buy a nozzle you, you end up not liking having buyer's remorse over, 
uh, you're going to have that 15 to 25 years. You know, if you buy an engine that's not specced the way you want it to be specced, you're going to have that 10 years front line, five years reserve. And in a lot of cities that have uh, economic problems or city budget issues, you know, you might have that engine uh, 15 years front line, five years reserve or longer. So like these are, these are very big decisions. And to me, it was my first experience in the fire service pretty much with Jay Camella heading it up where, you know, this was going to be data driven. You know, we were going to, we we're going to get demo hose in and demo nozzles. I was going to do the supply side demo four ways. I even made my own four way, uh, is, is a uh, possibility. Uh, I was a big fan of dual three, three inch beds and we had hose tenders that we didn't use very much. So I wanted to stay in dual three inch bed. So I was able to use a gate valve, a clappered Siamese and a straight Y and basically uh, put together a four way that would allow us to operate in a one let way, one dry lay at larger fires and leave the steamer port open. We have wet barrel hydrants. So the steam, we don't have to gate the unused outlets. They have their own gate built in because I've chosen to live in a beautiful temperate part of the uh, world and we don't really have a freezing issue. So uh, the California hydrant is known. It's the wet barrel hydrant. San Francisco actually invented that uh, California hydrant idea where the water is actually up to the street level and the gates are inside the hydrants. So. Um, that allowed us to do to do that, and then I wrote a whole report about four ways and and heavy hookups and stuff like that, and that went to the operations chief. So basically, in a between, you know, some of these larger block awards and fires, and Tracy Toomey's line of duty death, uh, and having kind of a internet boom around 2000, the city's budget being fairly robust um, from like 1980. 1998 to like 2008, the entire engine fleet and truck fleet basically turned over and the entire hose fleet, supply and attack and nozzles uh, turned over. So um, in there, I got assigned as the water supply officer. It used to be a deputy chief for AC's position on top of support services. No one was filling it. So when I promoted the captain, uh, I was just like, well, I'll take, I'll take it on as a side gig. And that gave me access to, uh, water engineers at the water. Thanks for department. everybody tuning in. We'll talk to you next time to on the journeyman firefighter podcast, Berkeley, uh, structural engineers and that kind of stuff. Uh, it also gave me the uh, right to sit in on all the, uh, committees. So like if, if there's water flowing through it, I kind of had my thumb on the scale um, so even the ladder company committee, I wasn't going to tell them what ladders to carry or what, uh, or uh, how to spec the uh, compartment space, but if they wanted a pre-plum aerial, you know, that was my domain. Same, same, same with the engines. You know, I had a little bit of influence on plumbing. Um, I didn't get everything I wanted most, you know, most of the time I got only some of what I wanted. Uh, but, uh, I also had a little spot on the hose and nozzle committee. So I was always shocked that that position didn't have better succession planning. It wasn't a chief's position still somewhere up. And I, I'm, I'm constantly shocked at fire departments that, that don't have water supply officers uh, that are fairly large. Because if you don't get that right, you know, if you don't have it built correct, 
true and correct and simple and it works all together, the bread and butter room and contents fire is not where it shows. You know, pretty much anybody that has some courage, that has some knowledge, that has achieved some level of dreamanship uh, should be able to handle those bread and butter fires. You know, quick search, quick lines in the building, critical flow. Um, I kind of call those the Superman fires because it always looks like a great outcome. You show up, there's people standing everywhere, there's fire blowing out one or two windows, and and everybody moves with a purpose and gets off the rig. And then pretty quickly, there's no more fire and someone's pulling a dog out or there's no search and the whole community goes, you know, that's seeing that and now filming that with cell phones, obviously, are like, God, that is fucking cool. Look what they just did. Um, to me, that's a fairly basic fire. You know, obviously, we lose people in those fires, you know, and we, we need to do them correctly. But water movement wise, you're usually using the supply hose just to refill the engine. You know, you've laid a five inch hose on the ground, which is basically a freeway for water for a fire that had a total application rate of maybe one hand line, 150 gallons a minute and a backup line. Um, I don't like calling them backup line. I think it's a faux pas. It's a secondary line should usually be able to stretch at least 50 feet further than the first line. So a lot of times two pre-connects at 200 feet, that's, that's going to be the case because the house doesn't need all 200 feet inside. And usually the first line extinguishes the fire. And if anything happens to the second line, it goes to the floor above and maybe hangs out with a little slop over up there. Um, but it's a secondary line until it's a backup line. And I've been to very few fires in my career where you actually need a backup line. So for me, a backup line has to be going to the same place the first line went. The first line has to be failing in one or two ways. It's either been stretched short. So that's why a backup line should be able to stretch 50 feet further. It's either stretched short or it doesn't have enough volume, right? So those are the two two things. So if you, if you don't find yourself on a line right next to another nozzle helping that attack, you, you've never really been on a backup line. You know, if you just, so I call them secondary lines. A lot of lead nozzle instructors call them secondary lines. And that's the way that, uh, that I like them. So that, so now I think I've pretty much talked enough about Oakland. I still consider it a great fire department. Uh, I miss it every day. Uh, if, if, if I could, I'd be there instead of doing what I'm doing. I think I'm making a good impact nationally, but uh, I much, I much rather be uh, a paid employee of the Oakland Fire Department and, and continue my career there because I think that 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 place is uh, truly special and a, a good fire department and full of good people. No, Dennis. Early on, I had a fire, um, and it flashed over on us. And as I went back to try to examine why we had what we had, uh, we had a little bit of flow path problem, but uh, one other issue we had was we had a flechomatic that was set uh, under 100 gallons a minute. So as a newer firefighter, I wasn't aware of all that stuff. And I think sometimes uh, we blindly just trust the leaders of our departments that they put the right tool in our hand and we stretch and we open up that bale and it's going to go out. You've gotten a chance to uh, go around to other departments. What is it that you see that they're missing? Is it they're, they're selecting their hose and nozzles and moving on to the next project because they don't have a dedicated person or, or is it a lack of understanding? Or what are, you, what are you finding just from the super high level um, 
Right. Find it? It's a, it's a, it's a, that's a fair question. Uh, and it's a good question. And down here, uh, uh, I think it was bullet point number four, critical thinking in the fire service. And I, I think, you know, before you can really say why these, these problems exist, you got to have a little discussion about critical thinking in the fire service. Um, uh, with with focus on normalization of deviance, I think that's really what occurred in Oakland. You know, it's not a, not a uh, not a bad fire department. You know, from 1979, which is like pretty much the last time they did a full nozzle and hose purchase, to 1998, 20 years, did they put out fires? Absolutely. Did they did they save a lot of property? Absolutely. Did they do it at 70 to 100 GPM? Yeah, that's that's how they that's how they did it. And honestly, there was a typo in the 1979 pump chart. This is kind of kind of ironic. They went from doing everything uh, per length. I think they had some East Coast uh, influences to doing everything per hundred. So they were recording the inch and a half friction loss as 15 per length, or around 30 per hundred, which is a little light for a 125 GPM flow. It should probably be closer to 36. Um, but inch and a half hose, like a lot of hoses, is, is, is bigger than advertised. So who knows, maybe they measured it in 1979. That's what it was. But when the pump chart came over, um, that one line, the inch and a half line stayed at 15. They should have doubled the number if they were going to do stuff per hundred uh, instead of per length. Now, I was told, you know, it was back in mimeograph, ditto, someone has to hand laminate the pump charts. I was told everybody knew that it was, you know, 30 per hundred and it was a typo. Uh, and then what happens? Years go by, people retire. It's the same pump chart on the rig. Fires are going out. Someone gets promoted. They don't get the memo. And then all of a sudden it's 15 pounds per hundred. Uh, and instead of having 110 gallons a minute, you have 70 to 80 gallons a minute, but the fires are still going out. Right. So you, the, the thing that's critical here to understand why some of these problems exist in the uh, fire service and in a lot of industries is you can capture bad practice as success, right? If the fire is out, right, and, and you've met your objective, but you could have done it better, right, but you don't know you could have done it better, you basically had normalized deviant behavior, right? So... And I, you know, I was amazed. I came from another fire department and like the, one of the first fires I kind of experienced was a kitchen fire in East Oakland. And I had some ex nozzle time experience before I got there and I, I opened the line. And uh, uh, when I got to Oakland, I was already a little bit uh, nervous about some things. Oakland still during the day just wore wool trousers. My last, one of my first fire departments didn't have hoods, but Oakland didn't have hoods either. So the fire department I came from came fully encapsulated. So I've seen kind of all three options in my career. So I was just like, well, that's kind of crazy. We're going in the structure fires just in wool pants and, and regular duty boots. And basically you couldn't put on your full turnouts. Like they would just leave you in the station because an alarm would come in. They had such a fast response. All you have to do is sling your jacket on, put your ax belt on, jump on the rig. You're, you're ready to go. And uh, they were allowed to uh, self-dispatch uh, at the time, I don't know if that's still the practice, but if a fire came in, a dispatcher could flip a switch and you would hear the actual 911 call. And if it was in your still and your company officer decided to respond, you didn't have to wait for a phone call or anything. So 
uh, you know, there was, there was no, as me as a new employee, I was like, I'm, I, you're issued bunker gear. A lot of guys wore it at night. Uh, I was like, oh, I'll just put my pants on, you know, I'm just, and there's no way you can't, you would be left behind because there's only four riding positions and it was an open cab design. You couldn't get dressed and riled. So, um, you're just getting on. So I'm in that fire. I open the line. It's fairly involved kitchen fire and it takes a while. Like, and eventually someone, Oakland had a habit of pulling like multiple lines at fire. So eventually another nozzle got next to me and the fire went out. And I was like, huh, that, that was kind of a strange experience. Then over the next year or so, these lines were so easy to move around the fire ground. You could just have like one person on the nozzle, maybe one person shagging a couple corners and you could have the nozzle open at all times. And it dawned on me that, you know, we're, we're not flowing, you know, what I was used to in my previous uh, fire department, but Oakland had a lot of tight stairwells and corners and stuff. And when we design a hose and nozzle package that replaced that, you know, those, those were, those were things that needed to be considered. Um, Station 16, back to my experience there as a lieutenant, Jim DeLacy was one of the test companies. There was basically three to four years of test companies with different nozzles and hose. And uh, he had an open mindset and he went to a couple fires with Daryl Liggins as the nozzles uh, on his company and was like, holy shit, I cannot believe we put this out with one line. And Daryl was the seven, eight inch test engine uh, I was a 15, 16 test engine at another, at another, uh, 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 another station. And my station was great when I had my normal crew there, but when I didn't have my normal crew there, we kind of struggled with the 70 pounds. So yeah. And you have to realize that hose advancement and nozzle technique wasn't super dialed because we were used to dealing with like 40 pounds of nozzle reaction at 80 at 80 and the fire chief needs the fire chief to go back to the crux of this question. The fire chief and the executive staff have the sole responsibility to ensure that equipment layout and spec is good, meets the jurisdictional infrastructure, delivers the critical flow they're looking for as the AHJ and it's consistent. There's nobody else responsible. It's absolutely the command level of the uh, fire department that should set the tone tenor and direction there and they should have good knowledge right so now back to that normalization of of deviance can you uh capture failure as success absolutely because you don't know something so what we really have to have is a discussion about the taxonomy of knowledge um don rumsfeld kind of popularized it what during the first uh, first part of the current Gulf War, when they were looking for weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq, and he said, "They're somewhere north, south, east, or west of Baghdad." And then he went into his known known speech, and the known known speech, everyone credits Rumsfeld with it. Rumsfeld learned it from a uh, he was assigned to NASA for a while. He learned it from uh, a rocket scientist that headed up a big division in NASA, and the guy. That guy said, I didn't invent it. It went back to child psychology, um, dealing with uh, abused children in the 50s. It was two child psychologists that really came up with this taxonomy of knowns. So, so to this question, to, to bore down uh, a little bit deeper, right? So 
um, all fire departments and administrations basically have to deal with these knowns. So there, there are known knowns, right? These are things that we're aware of and understand, right? And then there are known unknowns. These are things we are aware of, but don't understand. So like, that would be an example of where like, man, I'm not quite sure what happened at that fire like you had with that selectomatic nozzle. He knew it wasn't right. So you were smart enough to start questioning stuff. So that's a known unknown, right? Then there are unknown knowns, all right? So the, the, those are things we understand, but we are not aware of. So in other words, like an unknown known would be like to the instructors of af pump operations around America, they know it's perfectly safe to operate a pump at zero PSI off a hydrant, right? But if you went to most fire departments, they would say like, absolutely not. That's not safe. You're going to cavitate the pump. So that, that would be an example of, of that area of, of knowledge, you know, that, that unknown known. It's unknown to you. You're ignorant, but it's known to somebody else. So the body of knowledge exists. Then there's the final uh, uh, body or taxonomy of knowns, which is unknown knowns. I mean, unknown unknowns. Those are things we are neither aware of nor understand, right? So, so that could be something outside of the body of knowledge, right? So unknown unknowns. So where fire departments and everybody gets in trouble in life are known knowns. Those are things that we are aware of and understand. In Oakland, the known known was the inch and a half is the solution. It works really good. We've got it through experience. There's really nothing better for us. So it's something that we believe is true and correct, but factually, it wasn't fully accurate, right? And it, and it ended up being more accurate on the mobility side, less accurate on the suppression side. Like if, if you, I had to do it over again, you know, like, and I was, I had the same body of knowledge I had now, uh, I would have designed a hose specifically for Oakland. And I didn't think that was really possible until I started consulting where I, you know, if the purchase order is large enough, you know, host companies will listen. And then I look back in our history books, Oakland actually specced their own hose uh, size from Oakland tire and rubber back in the 60s and 50s. They, they went to two and three quarter inch hose when they introduced uh, inch and a half and they ended up in a dual bed of three inch with only the only two and a half on the rig was basically a pre-connected 200 foot blitz line. And then they had three pre-connected inch and a half. So we were very much like DC, very, very close to uh, the DC fire department, um, very close to uh, Detroit, you know, very, very, very similar, you know, and, and those, the both, both of those fire departments, you know, Detroit and DC, uh, do excellent jobs like like Oakland did. Both of them have done hose and nozzle studies, uh, realized like Oakland, they weren't flowing the water they thought they were flowing. The way they addressed it, they wanted 125. They they dropped their nozzle pressure. They had 125 at 100s. They went to 125s at 75s. Um, I think there are chiefs in both organizations that are trying to encourage the pulling of larger hand lines at large fires. But you know, 125 gallons a minute is uh, quite a bit of water if you get it in the right place. Now, that being said, 
default, I'm a 150 to 185 guy, uh, mainly because of Jason Vessel's article. Uh, also, at 50 PSI, you can replicate that 60 pounds nozzle reaction that the 125 at 100 everyone's comfortable with. So the main problem then ends up being hose. You know, if you if you cut the back pressure in half, or you cut it from 75 to 50, you have less mechanical force holding that hose open, especially down by the the uh, nozzle. You know that you're down to that last 50 psi and that last 36 inches. If you don't have hose, it is going to behave well at half the recent historical back pressure. Uh, you're going to have b bad problems with water mapping. You won't be able to move the nozzle left and right without it wanting to hit you in the face. So what admins need to know, I think what the fire service needs to learn uh, is what the police service learned years and years and years ago. Basically, um, don't reinvent the wheel, you know, uh, uh, work, work with good examples, you know, reach out to other agencies because ultimately there are going to be other agencies that have knowledge that you don't have and you're going to have knowledge that they don't have. And collectively, you can move the ball further downfield working together. The reason I think it occurs in the police department more organically or the police service more organically than the fire service is because they're held to much higher public scrutiny. You know, if I, if I go to a structure fire and it should have been a room and contents fire and let's say we stretch short or we bobbled the ball and gets out of the, the initial room and it gets into the, to the floor of origin and maybe even attacks, you know, the exposure a little bit. Um, and normally that would have been a room and contents fire for us. Uh, what's the consequences of that action? Nothing, right? Have you guys had a fire like that? Oh yeah. Not a goddamn thing. They don't know any different. Right. Well, that's it. So you, you, you're, you're still capturing that failure as success. The police service doesn't have that luxury, right? So if, if an officer goes to a domestic dispute and, uh, and uh, it should be a de-escalation, he's done this a hundred times, but it doesn't go quite right. Uh, the neighbor comes over, there's people yelling, it goes bad. All of a sudden a dog's like biting at somebody and the officer uses his weapon, shoots the dog or something like that. What's going to happen to that officer? Well, that officer is going to have to go back, document everything. Uh, probably going to be put off the street for a while. He's someday going to end up in court and have to justify all his actions. We don't have that level of scrutiny, right? So if you screw up your police department and it's not working properly, they'll come run it for you. You know, the U.S. Uh, district attorney will assign an expert like Bratton. He'll say, this dude is running your fire department. Not only is he running, I mean, running your police department, not only is he running your police department, but he's hiring and firing your employees until further notice, until we get you up to a level that is acceptable at the national level. We don't have that in the fire service, right? Because we don't have the same uh, issues with courts and being held accountable. So essentially, um, this has turned around a little bit. I think, uh, via social media, I think people start saying like, boy, that looks like a better way to do business. There's some of that. So there's some positive in social media. There's some negative. Uh, it's also NIST, you know, since the 90s has been kind of focused on in improving the body of knowledge and that's starting to get out. 
and then there's the UL. So we have this kind of like stew, these small conferences, you know, like, you know, the search culture guys, you know, you got the pump operator guys, you got the inline guys, and all of a sudden people are starting to realize, shit, we've been doing this wrong forever. There's no way that would have ever occurred without that community because your known known, if you have no outside perspective, your known known will never change, right? And fire chiefs are usually, fire departments are culturally driven machines, right? So mostly you promote within and you get up to the top and that's it. So you're, you're, you're a, you're a product of your culture, you know? So to get a little racy here, um, we could use an analogy like racism, right? So are people born racist? A absolutely not, right? Racist is a character flaw, learned behavior, typically taught, uh, and, then, and then you're surrounded with that community, so you think it's correct, right? So that would be a very bad example of how somebody you know, becomes uh, 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 culturally insensitive and, and, and racist in nature, right? So, so the fire service, you know, if your fire department, you know, has a problem and you come up and no one's identified it because there's no outside perspective, you're that victim, right? You're, you're, you're operating in that way. And I think that fire is so forgiving to water. If you, if you, if you show up to even a fairly well building, you know, if you look at like Paul Grimwood's notes on how much water it takes to put out a fire, he wrote an article called go with the flow. I heavily recommend it do the conversions. Um, he's looking at from a fire uh, protection engineer standpoint, it doesn't take a lot of water to make a significant impact. So, and then visually it's driven home to the firefighter. Look at that. We put it out, you know, okay. So you put it out in two, three minutes. You could have put it out in 30 seconds if you were just flowing a little more water and that two minutes on the fire ground, when you start looking at life safety and victims and searching the buildings, enormous. And that isn't captured. All of that is captured on the police side. They're heavily scrutinized. And there's a couple court cases going on in California right now where the defendants, uh, I mean, the plaintiffs, uh, the fire departments or the defendants have cited both NIST and ULFSRI research. Uh, so I think, you know, that day is coming. I don't think we're ever going to be like the police service with that level of scrutiny. But I think the body of knowledge is becoming more universal and it in, in fire departments are going to be uh, held more accountable. You'll have lawyers say like, why didn't you pull the two and a half? Or uh, why did you vent the roof with no hand lines in print? Uh, we know that adds extra oxygen. That's one of the lawsuits going on in California right now. So it's, it's coming. Um, and we're going to have to be, you know, better at our jobs universal. You, you can't just copy what the large fire department does in your, uh, your area. You know, the fire service is like fiefdoms. If you're near San Francisco, you did what San Francisco did. If you're near Chicago, you do what Chicago does. If you're near New York, you do what New York does. Um, that, that isn't going to fly anymore. You know, it's going to, it's going to have to be, you know, some people say firefighting is local. It's, that's true. You know, if, do you need New York's attack package if you have nothing but 1,200 square foot bungalows and small commercial in your suburb fire department, but you only have two people on the rig? 
Um, probably not. You know, you're probably going to cause problems to not have pre-connected line, just have bulk beds and, and it always slow 185 GPM. Um, you're you're going to be giving up some suppressive ability because you've copied the large agency next to you. So um, that that that's really people have to have Jim DeLacy on engine 16 in Oakland when he saw the fires go out with the seven eights and he said, I never thought it would work this well. He has known known that this isn't going to be better an inch and a half. And I've done my whole career, career on it proved to be factually inaccurate, right? So that's the big trouble. The big trouble is where you hold a belief to be a hundred percent accurate and in part, it's either totally inaccurate or in partly inaccurate. So you have to have that, that ability and that flexibility in your fire service career. And I think journeyman tradesmen also deal with this. Like if you're a journeyman elevator mechanic and Simmons does a different control module or, you know, Schindler does something and you got, you have to keep up with the technology and the body of knowledge and it becomes very easy to, miss stuff like that. So you have to realize that some of the things that you were taught, you know, no knowns, like don't take the pump below 20 PSI, uh, just aren't accurate. And there's probably a problem that you're having, you know, there's probably, it's an unknown for you, like how do I fix it? But it's a known for someone else. It's an unknown known. Somebody else has already fixed it and you shouldn't be concentrated over it you should have communication with those people so um, one more police analogy and then we'll get off the police right so single shooter right doesn't matter whether you're the sheriff of mayberry tennessee and you in the there's a single shooter in a building the first the sheriff officer shows up and they have to wait for tennessee highway patrol and then they're going to go in there with two two people working in a team and try to end the threat la city has the exact same plan right so it's First two officers on the scene, they go and try to end the threat. The difference between LA City and the town of Mayberry is strategically the same, but tactically they're going to have to operate different because there's different levels of resources coming. Fire is a physical phenomenon, right? We're super lucky, right? So there, if you show up and there's a 2,000 pound block of concrete on somebody and you want to lift it off, you have and you want to do it vertically you have to exert 2000 and let's say one pound. And if you want to go underneath it without shoring it, you know, OSHA says it has to have a four to one uh, safety to be under it. Like a crane, you know, if you're lifting something with a crane, it's 2000 pounds The walk under that load, the crane has to have an 8,000 pound capacity, right? So, so um, physical phenomenon's great. Fire is a physical phenomenon. We should be operating more similarly and less dissimilarly. Because I've never seen a fire run down the street, show up at the donut shop you're eating with your crew and kill you in the donut shop, right? Cops deal with humans, right? Cops, EMS is like this, right? Cops deal with humans. Humans are unpredictable. They have a much harder job, right? So we have a semi-predictable fire ground and we should have strategies that are similar to exactly the same and tactically we're going to operate different on the fire ground whether we're doing stuff simultaneously or sequentially based on our resources we're lucky we're street physicists when we're going to fires 
their street psychologist. If I have to bet my life on something, I'll take the physicist, not the psychologist, because the human mind's a confusing place. You know, Dennis, speaking on that, we, um, a lot of times people say that firefighting's like war, and I always remind them it's more like hunting because the fire doesn't know we're there. It just does what it does. The deer just does what it does. It doesn't really react to you unless you make a noise. You know, it doesn't go out of your way to, to really hurt you. So I always thought that, you know, firefighting is war analogy was, was a little off. Um, uh, I would agree with that. And, 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 uh, and uh, to, to parlay or take that one step further, right, there's a couple different types of hunting. You know, like I would be a bow hunter because I don't want to shoot Bambi and I probably wouldn't practice very much. And if I was, that would be a sporting hunting, right? Bow is more sporting than rifle hunting. Why? Because the rifle uh, hunter has a much greater level of success. They got a high powered scope. They can, they don't have to get close enough to the deer to use a bow, right? So fighting fire should be more like an assassination. The the field should be heavily leaned towards the suppression expert, the fire department, right? Like, you know, it's like a confrontation with, a, you know, someone smaller. Like, you're not, even then, you're not going to let them throw the first punch. You're going to kick them in the balls or whatever, gouge their eyes out. You want it to be as unfair as possible. So, to me, firefighting should be like going down to one of those stupid game ranches in Texas where they give you a high-powered uh, rifle, they confuse the deer and it's fenced in, and basically you've been drinking all day with your rich buddies and you go out there and shoot a deer or something like that, should be totally unfair. If you show up and you're routinely going like, man, that was a hot fire, you know, you're probably not opening the nozzle soon enough, you might not be flowing enough water, you know, we, we, should, we should do spec and layout and training to make it as unsporting as possible, right? Because we're not... We're not there to feel good about putting the fire out. We're there to search the building, uh, rescue people, and save property. So it should be a massively overwhelming advantage towards uh, suppression. So, so not only is it not hunting, it's not sportsman. And not only is it not combat, not, it's not even hunting that's sporting. It's unsporting hunting is what we're looking for right? Because we're not there for us. We're there for them. So like, and I remember when we switched our flow and a very senior lieutenant uh, at one of the union uh, meetings uttered the words, it almost seems unfair now. The fires go out too quick. They're not as much fun. And I saw the light bulb go on in his head and he was like, I probably shouldn't have said that, right? That's uh that's a good thing, not a bad thing, right? Because his whole career, what he realized is that fires that he was going to, that he used to think was challenging, now he's going to the same fires with different equipment, and it's much less challenging. He even said later that I probably changed the way I strike second alarms based on our change in attack packages. It was that successful right so he was used to seeing a certain you know 30 years of seeing a certain fire i need a second alarm now he sees a similar fire and he's not calling a second alarm right so that that's the things that i don't think chiefs get right because they're up there at the 
highest levels, they have their known knowns. They've come up through their culture, uh, you know, and if their culture is that lower flowing fire department or that fire department has a mixed hose fleet like we had and eight different nozzle designs and a pump chart that's not very accurate, do they look down and see fires going out? Absolutely. Is it the best way to be doing business? Absolutely not. It's so funny you said that about when you switched your nozzles. We we switched a couple of years ago from a um, automatic midmatic uh, to a uh, seven eighths, and the guys said the same thing. Like it's just not fun anymore. And it's weird to say it in that context, but you know you had guys that were adamantly against smoothbore, and as soon as they went to their first fire, they were shocked and amazed at it at how effective the nozzle it is. I won't say efficient, I'll say effective um, in actually putting out fires. And I think that would end a lot of the debate amongst most departments actually getting it and using it in the field when you have it a proper attack package. Um, one of the things that we dealt with, you know, you said that the unknown knowns or, you know, all that stuff is we're primarily a forward lay department. And when I went to your class, I was blown away. Um, I, I hate to say it about the talk of the LDH and trying to convince guys in my department that LDH has friction loss is like trying to convince them that, you know, the sky is green. We're forever taught that it's negligible. Um, and they just don't get that it's negligible at a hundred to 150 GPMs, but not at the GPMs it's putting out at the hydrant. Would you touch on that a little bit and the need for, you know, setting up for split lays and, and pumping hydrants and stuff like that and get into a little bit more of the, the friction loss on, on the uh, LDH? Well, history is everything. Uh, we have to understand how how uh, things were introduced into the the municipal fire service world to understand uh, uh, why it was a solution at one point and it's not a solution anymore. So five inch is an interesting beast because the industry that invented five inch they don't even use it anymore. They might use it to run a ground monitor or the way we would use like a piece of three inch or two and a half on the fire ground to like go over and run a monitor. But like, you know, industrial firefighting, the smallest hose size now is six inch. Williams Fire Control invented their own five inch. It's called the double nickel. It's seven and a quarter inches. So it's hydraulically equivalent to two fives. It's in five inch coupling, but if you look at the lay flat width, it's, it expands to seven and a quarter inches. And basically five inch hose came from industrial water, uh, firefighting operations and if you look at the really old five inch hose you'll see the initial stamped on it uh a w g and the w kind of uh straddles the uh the a and the g on the cast aluminum pieces or the couplings and what that was was above ground water okay um that's what it was above ground water supply and if you dig around you know if people are listening to this in the future if they dig around their firehouses or their services division or logistics, you'll often find a tri-gated water thief, you know, a tri-gated Y. Um, it'll be five inch storts on one side and it'll have three handles on it and it'll be three, two and a half or three inch threaded discharges on one side. It'll have a pressure relief device on top of it and it'll be stamped with those letters, AGW, a above ground water. All right. So the guys who in the early 80s were selling five inch into the fire service where they were saying it's like moving the hydrant. All right. So what occurred is there was a huge recession in the 70s, you know, uh, 
cities and municipalities were financially strapped. Oakland was one of them. Uh, we had five two-piece companies. Uh, uh, Washington, D.C. had two-piece companies well into the 80s, maybe even some existed in the 90s. You know, we could make a phone call and confirm my dates, but I think I'm pretty sure I remember some ran in the 90s. So what is a two-piece company? A two-piece company was a engine that was either followed a hose wagon or a hose wagon followed it, okay? And the hose wagon typically had a bed of three medium diameter hose sizes and some attack package. So in Oakland, it had a bed of three, three inches. So one, two, three, uh, guys rode on the tailboard. Four people rode on the hose wagon, two people chased in the engine. And uh, there was five of them. When they showed up at a fire, if they were first due, um, they decided whether they would have the hose wagon take one, three inch, two, three inches, or three, three, three inches. Three, three inches is hydraulically equivalent to five inch hose. The engine stayed at the hydrant. What we have to realize is the largest outlet on the hydrant is called the steamer for a reason because pumps push water, they don't pull water. It's not the job of the water department to design a system to give you fire flow at the end of your hose leg, your supply leg. They design a system through AWA standards, American Water Works Association, to provide fire flow in that neighborhood at the outlet of the hydrant, nowhere else. That's where they calculate it. They calculate it at the 20 PSI main pressure, theoretically, right? They very rarely go out and flow hydrants anymore. Uh, 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 routinely, they'll do sampling in their water district, but they basically do it mathematically now. But that's where that 20 PSI comes from. That 20 PSI has nothing to do with pump operators. It has everything to do with the water department. And the reason they keep their tests to 20 PSI when they used to flow them is they didn't want to like drop the main pressures very low and increase the velocity of water very fast in the pipes because that stirs up debris. Then grandma gets a glass of water and it's dirty and she complains. They're under tight regulation and uh, water quality standards. They have to record that when there's a glass of water that has poor color or whatever and someone's complained. And basically they got to report that to federal agencies and they'll get dinged, right? So, so when I do like a pump class, I'll put an inline pressure gauge on the hydrant. So I'll show people, I'll take the rig to zero PSI and uh, I'll go back and walk over to the rig, to the hydrant and it'll still be at 30 or 40 pounds. Well, let's say I just have a three inch off the hydrant or something. There's a lot of friction loss in three inch. So the compound gauge reads inlet pressure at the intake of your pump. It has nothing to do with main pressure, right? So that was a big area of confusion. Now I do like the 20 PSI rule for one, one particular area. I don't like dropping a rig below 20 PSI if it's an interior firefight. The reason I don't drop the, the compound gauge below 20 PSI if it's an interior firefight is that let's say another hydrant gets taken and some water gets used in demand and I was at zero and now it drops me that I'm running away from water, I'm using water out of my tank, right? So that gives you a buffer. When you're on interior firefights, you can pull a writ line, you can pull an additional line off the rig. So 20 PSI kind of view is a buffer. Um, and I use, the, I use the tank in that situation as a safety. So once I fill that tank back up, I close the tank to pump during an interior firefight. If I have a water supply issue, like my lead gets run over, which happens sometimes in Oakland or whatever, 
whatever occurs, I lose my supply. I have to be smart enough to shut my intake and rapidly open my tank. And then depending on the number of lines out, I only have 500 gallons in Oakland. You know, let's say I had three lines out. I marked one's an exposure line. That makes me smart enough to turn the exposure line, exterior exposure line off. It's very important that you mark your gauges. So that's where the 20 PSI is valuable. Now on an all defensive fire, I'll do the opposite. I'll leave the tank to pump open and I'll go ahead and keep deploying lines until I get to zero. And then when I start seeing some water come out of the tank, I know I'm running away from water without cavitating my pump and I can back off one line or the other, gently refill my tank and now I have a buffer. Now, back to your question, the five inch, right? So it's above ground water. So the hose wagon, this is where we got sidetracked, but it was important. Hose wagons are going away because they're like two extra members or three extra members. So the two piece companies are starting to go away in urban America and five inch is hydraulically equivalent to three, three inches. And somebody was smart enough to recognize this. So they went to Oakland in this, in my example, the history in Oakland, somebody said, Hey, we can sell you this new five inch hose. You can take your five two piece companies, redistribute those employees, make them four person again, put five inch in the bed and when they show up the fires and it's a house fire, they can still lay forward from the hydrant and they'll get more water than they ever got out of a single three, more than they need. But when they go to a large fire, right, you call them as a water supply company, we're gonna include this device, this trigated Y, and they should lay from the fire back to the hydrant that has the best capacity in the area and they should pump down on this trigated Y. And in Oakland's case, the trigated Y had three three-inch discharges. So the old salesmanship, or it's like moving the hydrant, that's true if you put a high portable hydrant on the fire ground and you go down to a hydrant and pump back. And why is that true, right? Now you have mechanical force forcing water down five inch and you have the rig on the hydrant. So five inches, is very low friction loss below a thousand gallons a minute. But a lot of hydrants in urban America, if you heavy hook up or double tap them and you do it properly, they're gonna give you between 1500 to 2500 GPM. And most 1500 GPM pump bodies kind of run out of capacity to move water uh, around 2300 GPM. So if you, if you look at 2000 gallons a minute in five inch hose, you're gonna be up around 32 PSI. So people go like, well, that's not a lot. You know, a pumper could pump that. If you stay below 100 PS, 150 PSI, you know, the capacity pressure test during the annual service, you could say be 500 feet away from the fire and you could be pumping the five inch at 150 roughly and you could get 2000 gallons a minute down at, at the fire ground. And I would say, you are correct. That, you know, that's what, that's what the salesman was trying to teach you. Now, reverse it. Drive away from that hydrant, right? Drive away from that 2000 GPM capable hydrant, which a lot of them are. Drive away from that hydrant and go that 500 feet. Well, that hydrant doesn't have 150 pounds in it. it most hydrants, because the AWA standards, the water main pressures around America are between 40 and 100 PSI. They're rarely above 100 PSI because if they're above 100 PSI, around 120, water departments start 
requiring buildings to have regulators on them to lower PRVs to lower pressure because the ice maker will blow up, you'll damage the hot water heater, that elbow that's the elbow stop on your toilet's only rated at a continuous duty cycle of 100 pounds. So, so water districts stay between 40 and 100. So let's just choose something in the middle, like let's say like 60. All right, so if you have 60 pounds available in a hydrant and you wanna go 500 feet away from it, like example I just gave, which that hydrant would do 2000, now we're looking at 60 pounds available, right? So we'd have to be uh, five, let's say five times 50 would be 75. So five times 10 is 50. So right in this area, we've gone from 2000 gallons a minute at the fire ground to roughly 1200 gallons a minute. So we gave up an entire heavy stream by not having a pump on the hydrant. Now, so people go like, okay, well, that's a big deal. As more hydrants get taken on the fire ground, residual pressure drops, right? Residual main pressure drops. There's more energy, there's more water moving in the mains. So that's why you go to a master stream fire and it's like everyone forward laid and the first master stream looks great, second master stream looks okay, third master stream goes in operation, none of them are good anymore because you've increased the velocity of the water in the water mains so your residual pressure has gone down. So there's less energy to force hose down your, your, your fire ground lay, your forward lays. So if you had a 20% or 30% reduction in residual pressure, which is, which is totally within the bounds of reality, very average. So now we're down at like 30 pounds at the hydrant. Let's say that would be 50% cut. So let's go 40 pounds at the hydrant after a couple hydrants are taking on that five inch forward lay. So now we're looking at like five times eight is 40. Now we're down at 900 gallons a minute. So all three rigs used to have 1200 gallons. Now they're down to 900 gallons a minute. So you're only getting 2,700 gallons a minute out of the first three hydrants when any one of them can probably supply two grand. They have a 6,000 GPM capability on this corner and you're flowing less than half of it because you haven't put pumps on the hydrant. And that's, that's the problem with five inch hose. It works so good, it created a normalization of deviance. People, there was no succession planning, no handing down of knowledge. That trigated why ended up in a storage closet because we never need them for our house fires. So, and then people go like, well, I remember it's like moving a hydrant. And it's like, no, no, you have to have the device. You have to lay from the fire to the hydrant. That was the portable hydrant. You don't even carry it on your rig anymore, right? So that's one issue with with five inch and friction loss it's very big the other issue at large fires right and we had this happen in oakland recently and they called me up um if you assign a pump to the hydrant like you have a four-way valve and it, on your second alarm you start assigning pumps to hydrants you get multiple benefits right first you double your on-scene pumping time you know people are going to listen to this there'll be a percentage of the audience that has been at a fire where they're marking their fuel gauge and they have a stopwatch out and they're trying to decide what their diesel consumption is because they've been there an hour and they went from a full tank to a half a tank and things still don't look good. So they're realizing they're gonna run out of diesel sometime uh, during this event and you're gonna have to order fuel tenders. If you have pumps in series, if you have a tack pumper and a supply pumper, you have twice the horsepower moving the same amount of water, right? 
that means you double your on-scene pumping time. It's twice as efficient, right? If you have identical horsepower rigs, identical spec rigs, you've doubled your on-scene pumping time. Now, the other, the other thing that's not well captured is that people consider mass streams kind of low pressure operations, 80 PSI at the tip, 100 PSI at the tip. It's low pressure, but it's heavy water. You're moving a lot of water. That's why you burn so much fuel, right? So by putting a pump on the hydrant, the rigs operate at less RPM, but you can also force feed the attack pumper. So, you know, if you have a very tall building, it's stand piped, right? You can have that attack pumper move a lot of water at a high pressure. Now, where does that become very advantageous? Now, I'm a big fan of master streams water mapping the fire ground. And, you know, John Freeman, the hydraulic guy who kind of responsible for mo the modern body of knowledge around fire stream development in the late 1800s, he was an American, uh, said that pressure is the biggest contributor to reach, right? So on a 2000 GPM tower ladder, when I teach a class, I use a two inch tip. I'll have I'll have the tower ladder set up one engine forward later the tower ladder for the dry tower ladder. So you have a pump on the pedestal. I'll supply the tower ladder. Let's say there's a four way on the hydrant. So they get hydrant pressure initially. Well, maybe they can only get, maybe they can only get 900 gallons a minute. That two inch tip will work at 900 gallons a minute. You've struck the second, another engine shows up on the hydrant. Now you have a mechanical advantage. Now that engine heavy hooks up, pumps the four way up to the attack engines supplying the tower. Now they have 2000 gallons a minute available. Do I want them to shut the tower ladder down and screw on a two and three quarter inch tip and go for 2000 gallons a minute at 80 PSI? The reason you can't leave that tip on there is typically you're not gonna get that with the first alarm. You need a pump on the hydrant. Or do I wanna just leave the two inch tip in place and run the pressure up on it. So at 2000 GPMs at 80 PSI is roughly 950 pounds of reaction force. The two inch tip at 150 PSI is roughly the same reaction force, around 950 pounds. So I'm not damaging the equipment. I'm not exceeding wind load, ice load, uh, nozzle reaction. You know, if, if it was designed for 2080, it's the same reaction force at 1500 at, uh, at, at 150. Now here's the huge difference. I'm probably gonna get a calculator out to do this. At 80 PSI, what do you think the nozzle velocity is? A hand line at 50 PSI is 85 feet per second, right? So when you're inside a compartment, a lot of advanced hose and nozzle instructors that have a lot of experience with fire will say, address the overhead. Well, we get two benefits, right? You get gas contraction, you get water close to you, right? You get droplets falling all around you, right? Because at 85 feet per second, that's roughly 60 miles an hour. So if you're not addressing the overhead, where's all your water going? Far away from you, right? So a low nozzle pressure is a good thing inside a compartment. Like at 100 PSI, it's almost 120 feet per second. And one of the reasons I hate 100 PSI nozzles is not only the reaction force is much higher at the same GPM, your velocity is much higher. And when I'm in a 20 by 20 room, 85 feet per second is already too fast, right? That's one of the things like I think Kirk Allen, the inventor of the Vindicator nozzle kind of captured that, uh, that a lower nozzle pressure can give you much better GPM, right? 
And then he has an aerator and stream straightener on there to try to overcome some stuff. You know, my personal issue with the vindicator nozzle is that I think it's at too low a velocity because when you read Freeman, he says a, a handline stream should strike an object with enough force to shatter in the droplets. And if you, if you, Kimball wrote an article, Warren Kimball wrote an article on low pressure nozzles in the 50s and trying to upflow. So GPM's not everything, right? When you look at a compartment, you have to be able to flow 90 degrees left of the nozzle, 90 degrees right of the nozzle directly overhead. And I honestly believe the small tack package should be designed well enough that you can flow over both shoulders. Because when you go into a fully darked out area, you know, and you, you're not Andy Sarns, you know, you don't have an officer with a tick telling you, hey, left, right, up, or down. You have to have kind of a water grenade approach. You want to basically wet everything on the advance, right? So because, and this is going to tie back into this five-inch thing, I'm going to get there, because water really only extinguishes fire in a compartment, right, in five ways, right? There's five possible actions your water's doing. First, your water is hitting hot surfaces. So they're cooling hot surfaces, right? Nature abhors a vacuum, energy goes from, low, from high to low. So now that hot surface is not hot anymore, absorbing some of the energy and heat flux. Some of the water is gonna go through the hot smoke. There's gonna be droplets falling through the hot smoke. As you cool the hot smoke, you're gonna get a great deal of gas contraction. Some of that water is actually gonna go through the flames. That's gonna absorb some of the energy by uh, sacrificing mass, right? It's gonna evaporate a little bit, all right? And then some of the water is gonna hit fuels that are unaffected, like they hadn't reached combustion level yet. They're hot surfaces, but they're fairly unaffected, right? Nice thing about hitting unaffected fuel is you've changed the energy dynamic to get them to flash. So if you do a wet flowing advance, and you've gone through like an area of stuffed sofas in the living room or something because it's all dark and black, and then somebody takes a window because they think they're helping you, and they have all their gear on. They didn't have their glove off and wet their finger and hold their head. There's no flag. Well, they didn't realize there was heavy wind on the Charlie side of the house to take a Charlie side window, and now you're in a bad flow path. Well, if you've wetted stuff on your advance, right, wet stuff can't easily ignite. So... So that's helpful. And then the money, the money, the money shot is the water that hits the actual flaming surfaces. Sorry, that's another wine ringing in my house. So, so those are the five, five ways, right? Hot surfaces, hot smoke, flames, the fuel that's actually burning or the seat, right? And then the unaffected, the unaffected fuel. And a guy from Sweden has a very nice diagram that shows this. And I would, I would uh, wreck his name, so I'm not going to do it. His first name's Stefan, uh, and it's uh, this. He wrote a book that has this diagram in it, and I use it in my hydrants and nozzles uh, presentation, and it it kind of gives you an idea what water's doing in a compartment fire. Now flip the switch. We're back to this five inch putting a pump on the hydrant, going for a higher pressure master stream. Are we going to get gas contraction? No, master stream fires really. You're not, you're not in the compartment. You're going to get some gas contraction, but it's not going to, gas contraction is not going to significantly suppress the fire, right? Uh, are, are, is the, does it have to go through a convection column or the hot smoke? Absolutely. Are you going to cool some of the smoke? Maybe, right? Uh, are you going to hit unaffected fuel? Well, you're going to have some exposure lines out. That's what they're doing, right? 
So what's your master stream really focused at? It has a poor line of sight to the seat of the fire. And what we want all of our master streams to do is hit with enough force and have enough reach to shatter and try to get the fire to convert from a defensive exterior operation to a partial or full interior operation. And often what prevents that from occurring is distance, wind, and gravity, right? So uh, then the fourth component that most people don't talk about is, and I'm trying to quantify this, I'm probably gonna ask Dan Madrakowski um, um, within the next year to see if we can come up with some fire dynamics that explains this. I've seen it successful on fire grounds is that if you were in a hot environment, right, and you had no way to suppress it, would you walk through it slow or fast? And that, that's not a rhetorical question. If something was hot and you had to travel through it, would you want to travel through it slow or fast? Fast. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We've all been there, right? You go outside to get your newspaper, you live in Southern California, you don't have your shoes on, pavement's hot, right? Mm -hmm. Do you just stroll out casually? You guy, Grant, from Florida, so he has the beach foot, right? I'm going to get off my towel. Oh, God, sand's kind of hot. I, I, I want to get over to the cooler and grab my beer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed up a little bit. Should I go back for my sandals or should I go for the beer, right? So, <laughs> you know, everybody realizes that traveling through something hot fast is much better than traveling through it slow. So we look at these master streams at 80 PSI. Why can't we move them through this convection column faster, right? Why can't we vary the nozzle pressure to map the, the, the master stream fire ground, right? And, and think about it. If you're on the corner of a building and one stream has 30 feet of reach into a building, right? That's a, that's a footprint of extinguishment of around 900 square feet inside. If you go, if you just get 10 more feet, it's 40 times 40, it's 1600, 1600 square feet. If you get another 20 feet at the corner of the commercial, it's 50 times 50, it's 2,500 square feet. So, so if you get 2,500 square feet versus 900 square feet, Who's going to do a better job? And then the stream's moving faster through the hot convection column. So you put a pump on the hydrant. Now you have the mechanical advantage that will allow you a, a much higher velocity master stream. In the industrial fire service world, they don't do master streams at 80. They rarely do master streams at 100. You know, Stang designs all their kits to flow at 150. And Akron... Elkhart and I believe TFT, right, rates their equipment the 200 PSI. So, you know, I was just in the colony uh, fire department, you know, uh, the chief uh, invited me down uh, to do some pumping operations there. They had a 2000 GPM tower ladder. We have video, you know, we did the 2000 GPM stream at 80. We did 1500 at 150. We did an inch and three quarter at 175. And we looked at different areas and and the reach is much much greater uh and the velocity was much better on a windy day with the higher stream the higher pressure stream so what do you have to avoid you have to avoid exceeding reaction force and you have to avoid 
uh, uh, activating the PRV on the truck. The waterway on trucks are protected between 230 and 250. It's fully open at 250. I kind of feel like I failed if I don't have some water weeping out of the PRV. Uh, uh, that means that I've, I've tapped the truck out. There's only really two manufacturers of telescoping waterways uh, in the United States. All, all of them rate them to 300 PSI uh, seals. That's why the pedestal protection is at 250. It gives them a safety. So if you know your equipment better, right, and you know what your fire stream does, and you build up that body of knowledge, and you look at other industries that do this, and you go like, we might be doing this wrong, right? Uh, then you go out and put it in practice in the field, and you get a good suppression. Um, you go like, oh, this, there might be something to this. Then you're going to have to like do more study. Now in the field in Oakland, I typically ran a selectable gallonage nozzle on my master stream. I would set it at 500 because I knew at 500 GPM at 100 PSI, the tank the pump rating on my engine was 500, right? So I knew I could show up and make a blitz attack using my, my deck gun while I've laid, let's say, forward. And we have four inches, four ways. So let's say we strike a second alarm, the four way is going to be addressing. And my hydrant man charges the hydrant through the four way. And now I look up. Well, the nice thing about the selectable gallonage fog nozzle on an engine is an engine's one of the few devices where you have water on it. You know, most dry companies don't have that, right? They, they, there are quint trucks out there. I'm not a big fan um, uh, in urban areas. I think they should be dry. So you got to get a pump at the pedestal like LA City does, right? So you put a pump at the pedestal, you should have a target flow for that ladder. You shouldn't have to be switching tips. You should have a range and a pressure, you know? Uh, and, and for 2000 GPM waterways that have the proper stops and uh, to prevent uh, more than 45 degrees left and right and 45 degrees up usually on, on 2000 GPM waterways, I like the two inch tip between 80 and 150 PSI. So now we look at the 150 PSI flow and there's an equation here. Let's just do this real quick. Do 12.14 times the square root of 150. So you're at 148 uh, feet per second. So 148 feet per second, let's just do feet per second to uh, miles per hour, right? Let's do that to MPH. I'm gonna just use Google to do this last part. So uh, 100, let's just call it 150. That's 100 miles an hour, right? 100, 100 PSI stream, or worse yet, an 80 PSI stream, 12.14 times the square root of, oops, the square root of 80, you're at 108. So 100 miles an hour versus 108. So it's 73 miles an hour versus 100 miles an hour, right? Which stream's gonna have better penetration, right? And if nozzle pressure, now the 2000 GPM stream at 80 PSI has a pretty substantial reach, 
right? Because it's moving mass. And if you go out and you measure them, the 150 at 1500, it's a little bit better, uh, right? But it's less massive. So, you know, what's going to go farther? If you throw a tennis ball at 85 feet per second and you throw a baseball at 85 feet per second, the baseball goes further because it has more mass, right? So, you know, I've measured some of this stuff. It's just my own numbers and me messing around over the years. But if you take a surveyor wheel, right, and you measure the distance, then you look at the exact gallonage in place. Like so you take a one gallon in the stream and you, you chalk it out on the ground, right? You go like this one gallon is this much further from the 150 PSI at the same time, right? So you're, you're throwing it much faster, right? So what's harder to hit, a slow pitch ball or a hard, a fast pitch ball, right? So you're going through the convection column faster. So back to that engine with that fog nozzle, right? I personally kind of like it. Now I had a higher level of, of knowledge and maybe expertise. So when I would get a hydrant, if I needed to go far, I wouldn't change it from the 500 gallon setting. I would just increase the throttle to get more reach. If all of a sudden I wanted it to come closer to me and I was up there operating it, I could slide it to a larger GPM setting and it would bring that stream back close to me. And Kurt Isaacson does like kind of kiddie pool thing and some other instructors do it. It's not so much how much water you're flowing on the fire ground. Is it getting where it needs to get? So like that example I gave you, like a nozzle man up there operating that deck gun can kind of semi map the fire ground using that piece of equipment. Is it as good as a inch and three eighths uh, at 500 gallons a minute? The inch and three eighths is an interesting beast because you can take it all the way up to 200 PSI, right? That's what a lot of them are rep for. And by the way, guys, people that are listening to this, please, you know, go out, find out what your specs are. You know, most three inch risers can handle uh 1250 gallons a minute at 100 psi which means the reaction force is about 625 and at 625 the the uh reaction force on a on a inch and three eighths is let's see here you're putting the pumper up on two wheels at that point aren't you no it's only <laughs> 600 pounds not. It's only 600 pounds uh, uh, nozzle reaction. So like, you know, so if you, if you end up at a call, let's say it's a hazmat or something and you need to get water far away from you, it's okay to use that inch and three eighths at, at 200 PSI if it's within your design specifications on your apparatus. So I think, I personally think, and I've seen this on the fire ground, I remember a warehouse fire I had specifically where we use that fog nozzle like that. And I had a senior captain say, we're gonna be here all night. And I, a lot of times you wanna park close to the building, right? If you park close to the building, right? And let's say the fire's on the second floor. And by the way, deck guns suck at everything below the second floor. You're like aiming them at the ground, right? The rigs are tall. You should never use a deck gun to try to aim below the rig. You know, put a couple rams out, you know, deploy some hand lines. Hand lines are great, like a two and a half inch. Know how much your two and a half inch can put out. You know, if you're flowing, you know, 300 gallons a minute, you can put out 900 square feet every 30 seconds with the, based on the, the, uh, the uh, National Fire Academy formula. And that's really based on 
getting, it's a non-scientific formula and it's based on field observation. It's based on getting water where it needs to be. Like if you see a residential house on fire and you need to, you need to put some exterior water in a heavy body of fire or a small strip mall or something like that, a hand line almost always trumps uh, a deck gun just based on water placement. And then the RAM monitor, you know, I kind of joke around the RAM monitor almost makes the tower ladder useless for the strip mall fire where everyone puts the bucket down. It's faster, it's cheaper, it's movable on the fire ground. You don't have to lift the jacks to move it down. You know, Campo teaches the donut roll to move the tower ladder along. Now, a tower ladder, obviously, if you have multiple stories on fire, is a far superior piece of equipment than a RAM monitor because now the RAM monitor has the same problem the deck gun has on the ground, aiming towards the ground. So, you know, when you're thinking about master streams, it becomes critically important to, you know, roofs are meant to keep water out. You know, Nick Martin's tower ladder class, you know, Campo teaches it, you know, they should be at the level of the fire. An on-plane water application is vastly superior to an off-plane water application for suppression, right? So, so, you know, I look at master streams and I just think that the fire service has some growing to do, uh, mainly because the books are probably incorrect now. So where are that 80 and 100 PSI coming from? We got to think about where those numbers came from. 80 PSI with a nozzle reaction of, uh, uh, you know, of uh, 500 or 600 uh, at a certain gallonage was a tremendous amount of nozzle reaction when we only had light duty aerials. Uh, you had water towers that were wood and they were spring loaded. So, you know, you read some of this stuff and it hasn't changed in decades, but the equipment's all changed, you know, like, so like, I bet you if we had the ability to go back and grab John Freeman from the late 1800s, and move them forward and then give him, give him all the stats on monitoring equipment, there is no way he would come to the conclusion uh, through physics and math, and math that you should be operating at 80 and 100. He, he would come to the conclusion that water needs to go where it needs to go and you can safely operate from in this setup, you can safely operate from 80 to 150 and in this setup you can safely operate from 80 to 200 and that you should uh titrate for effect if you're a medic you know you should apply water in a way that gets the greatest return on investment and i i think you know one of these questions is where is the fire service heading and master streams higher velocity i think we were doing some things really incorrectly for years hand lines had too much velocity right? The water's going too far away from you. We're not flowing enough inside. Outside, we've sacrificed everything for GPM. I'm an apparatus manufacturer. The book says 80 PSI is a smoothbore master stream. I've rated my tower ladder to 2000 GPM at 80 PSI. That means it's also rated at 1500. You know, it's also rated at 1500 at 150. It's exerting the same physical force. If you call up a manufacturer and you say, is that okay? They'll, they'll, they'll say, as long as you're not exceeding the nozzle reaction and you're not exceeding the pre the acceptable pressure in the waterway so you not have the prv fully open right at, at the pedestal we see no problem in that it's within the design of the rig so we need to become more intelligent uh in this area and know what our equipment is capable of um and and those great 
minds of hydraulics of the past, you know, the, the Campbells, the Fred Shepherds, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, John Freeman, right? If they came now to the future, remember when they wrote those books, they had class B pumpers and cotton woven jacketed hose and only light duty aerials that would support 250 pounds. When I came to Oakland, I wrote a 78 tiller that had screw down jacks and a light duty aerial and you had a clamp on monitor and there was this old rule 70 70 and 80 right so it was it was uh 70 pounds at the nozzle inch and three quarter tips uh seven uh uh 70 uh 70 degrees of hoist and no greater than 80 feet tall if you didn't follow those rules you could actually collapse the aerial just with the nozzle like we had to know it wasn't like a modern pre-pump aerial where you have all sorts of forgiveness based in the system. We had no PRV that would open. You know, we had only a 250-pound tip load. That aerial was actually designed not to operate as a cantilevered aerial at a building fire to get the full rated capacity of the aerial. They wanted you to drift the tip into the, into the building, right? So all this stuff has changed, but our books have not, right? Because what? Most fire goes out with the first hand line. That's our bread and butter. To, to go beyond, to become a journeyman beyond this, you have to look at the different agencies. You have to look at the equipment spec. You, you have to reach out across the United States, right? And when they had the Grenwell fire, uh, I talked to a couple people uh, that were involved in the, the, uh, the investigation and they're like, they're talking about heavy streams and stuff. And I'm like, why don't you just do 150 pounds and their equipment, like they laughed. They sent me like their designs of their aerials and stuff. Like they're nowhere nearly as capable as a US designed uh, tower ladder. Like it's not even, it's not even close, right? So if you're not using the full capability of your equipment, whose fault is it, right? It's a combination, right? It's a combination that, that the fire service is so task saturated and time compressed because we've become an all risk mitigation entity, whether it's EMS, hazmat, nuclear biology, biological, when you get a block of origin fire and you go there, you're gonna see no pumps on hydrants, right? Which means the largest investment in your community is being neglected. You're gonna see second and third alarm rigs parked a block away with manpower walking up. So you've turned water pushing machines, you've turned steamers into buses. And then you're gonna look up and you're gonna see uh, 80 to 100 PSI master streams that aren't reaching the seat because nobody's realized that the design of this equipment has substantially changed since those numbers were put in books, right? So I, I would say that heavy stream fire development in the in, in the United States, pretty much nobody does correctly. Yeah, that's some uh, that's some great insight. It's got I know it's got us thinking about that. I want to go back and now pump the hell out of our our engine next day with the deck gun. I know you made Kyle and I happy. We've had this discussion at work uh, with some folks who think the deck gun is the end all be all, and. Uh, I just never really saw, like you said earlier, the use in it uh, for a first or second floor fire. You just can't get anywhere with it. It's a fixed position. Um, I think the two and a half, we've had a fire one time where it was on two floors and we pulled the two and a half and 
uh, it actually got over pumped and this guy handled it fine, but he hit three sides of that building and just knocked the shit out of it. Whereas, you know, the chief had us shut it down. He used a deck gun at one point and the deck gun got one corner of one room on one floor. Um, yeah, I think that's engines, engine spotting for master stream operations on first arrival. If you're the first arriving company, it has to be a fire above the second, second, second floor is iffy, uh, second and third, definitely not first floor. Um, and you actually have to be smart enough. Like if, let's say you have fire on the second and third floor, if you position for the second floor, when your stream hits the third floor, right, it's coming in at a steeper angle. So you're going to have less penetration in that commercial space. So what you really want to do is use your throttle to increase your re reach a smaller tip size, increase that velocity, and you want to park further than you would think away because now you have a more line of sight into the second floor. And when you raise the tip up because you're farther back, that angle is less steep and that means you'll be reaching in because you can always increase the angle up higher and get that, that uh, Ray McCormick calls it the rooster comb on the ceiling. You can bring that comb back to you. But it's there if you're if you're if you're physically closer to the building, right? The nice thing about taking that outside lane, you know, if you do it correctly uh, and you spot correctly, you can leave a, a, a good inside lane for a tower ladder. And the reason a tower ladder is better than a ladder tower is a tower ladder is built on a box frame with multiple extension pieces. So when you take a tape like Mike Wilbur teaches in his FDIC class. And you look at the 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 outside, the buckets closer back to the rig, right? Because it's not a ladder tower; it's a tower ladder. That means that the 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 nice thing about a tower ladder is it's like the nozzleman's in the bucket, and he can he can get up on plane next to the second, third, fourth story window and actually map the surface more accurately, right? So. So if you end up having a ladder tower and it has a very long initial bed, you've you you've given up that ability. And Mike Wilbur's class, I can't recommend it enough. Where he obviously knows way more than I do about this stuff, and he brings tape measures and stuff. Like there's people who've bought ladder towers for storefront things, and you go measure their street, and there's not enough room to deploy it that way between parked cars and whatever. They would have been much better off buying a tower ladder than a ladder tower. And, you know, chiefs have these important decisions to make and they might not have the, the understanding that their known known is actually factually incorrect. And you should call somebody like Mike Wilbur and say, Hey, explain this to me, calm down in my community with your tape measure and in your ground ladder survey. I do water department surveys and, and jurisdictional infrastructure survey for hand lines and attack packages. And I'm not trying to duplicate what I did in Oakland. That's ridiculous. Like I'm trying to come and look at your jurisdictional infrastructure, your staffing and come up with something that is a made uh, to, to, to function in your community's constraints, your staffing's constraints. And Mike Wilbur's the same way, right? He's going to show up. If your streets are super wide and you're a suburb and you can only buy one truck he might steer you to a ladder tower you know i'm not sure but if you're narrow he might say like get a tower ladder make a mutual aid agreement with the tiller down down in the next jurisdiction because they have the ladder package you need 
work better with your neighbors. Cause I've seen his, some of his finished work where he goes through and it's a, it's a, it's a made to order truck function for that area, wherever he's been hired. And this is the kind of thing you need to buy. And this is why, and it's that it's data driven and it's a custom solution. Like I'm trying to do that on the host side. The problem that I run into is that, you know, if you told somebody you ordered a 24 foot ground ladder and it came and it was, you measured it and it was instead of 24 feet, it was 24 feet and six inches. And you called the ladder manufacturer and the ladder manufacturer said, Hey, don't worry about that. That's just a bonus six inches. Do you think anyone in the American fire service would accept that answer? No, they would send the ladder back. They send me a ladder at 24 feet or don't send me a ladder at all. Well, you know, there's lots of inch and three quarters, 1.88, 1.9, 1.85. There's nozzles that, you know, have variable flows. There's pumps that don't read accurately because where the pressure pickups are placed. So, you know, I've been places where they use bumper lines as a normal attack and their pump charts technically correct with their friction loss, but they're using a bumper line. There's eight elbows before, before it gets to that outlet and the pressure pickups back in the pump doghouse. So we go out and we pedo or, or, or we, or we use a GPM meter that's calibrated and they, they've been like, yeah, we flow 150 off our bumper lines. So they're like, no, you don't you flow 110. You're, you're 20 pounds light at that flow because of the way this is designed or 10 pounds light, you know, cross lays with kickstand swivels at 160 GPM typically need to be pumped 10 extra PSI uh, to get the same, you know, on your pump chart is what, is what your friction loss is. And then a lot of times, People have jumpers off their crosslays or pony sections, whatever you want to call it. They've bought all new hose. They haven't looked at their pony section. I pull a pony section off and I look down at the same pony section has been on the rig. It came from the last rig, so it's 20 years old. And you look down and it's all delaminated and screwed up and they're in automatic nozzles. I'm like, dude, you guys are only flowing 80 gallons a minute. No way, our pump discharges at 200. Well, there's 50 pounds of friction loss right here in this piece of hose that you failed to replace, right? So. Uh, the problem is that fire department was successful extinguishing fires at 80 GPM because, you know, if you go to a room and contents fire and you put 80 GPMs in it, uh, it'll go out. Now, is it the safest way to do it? What if there's a flash out or 80 GPM is going to be enough water to absorb that energy is coming at you? No, absolutely not. Right. So they were operating in a manner where they thought they had a known known, but actually there was an unknown unknown to them but it was a known known to me. Right. So, so, you know, it's difficult. The, you know, the, the, the people constantly ask me like, what three books would you read? You know, um, uh, I, I really like Pergington's hydraulic books. He was a local guy at taught Chabot college here written in the seventies. It's called firefighting hydraulics by Pergington. There's a, a book, uh, that was written by a seventies chief uh, named Irwin. I can't remember where it is. I just, I just took it camping with me. It's probably still in my truck uh, called fire apparatus and procedures, but there's really no John Norman's fire officer uh, uh, handbook, right? Like to me, if you read that book, John Norman's book, you have a good, sense of what a company officer is responsible for and his duties on the fire ground. There's really no pump operating or fire stream book like that. You know, it's just, 
it's just spread out. You know, the closest one is uh, Dave Fresnel's Fire Stream Management Handbook. And that's really a, a accumulation of a bunch of other books that he put together. There's some stuff in there that I probably consider inaccurate now as the body of knowledge has increased. He's told me he's working on a second edition. I helped him with one of the chapters. But, you know, as a fire commissioner in the city of Detroit, I, I want to hold your breath. I don't think that thing's going to be written or finished anytime soon. So essentially one of the most important areas of the fire service, and I had kind of started working on a book right when I got hurt because uh, I was asked to, doesn't have a sole book. Like, you know, like you look at uh, Collapse of Burning Buildings. Well, if you read Vincent Dunn's book, you have a pretty good understanding of, uh, of that, right? So like there is no book that solely focuses on fire stream and pump operations uh, in the American Fire Service that is a Bible. It just doesn't exist. The Bible's out there, but it's in like 20 different books and 13 different chapters. And this, this author has part of it wrong. This author has this correct, but this other stuff wrong, you know? So, and, and by wrong, I mean, it might just not be historically accurate anymore. If the guy says, you know, like, don't go over 80 PSI on smoothboards, and you look at it, it was published in 1940. Well, if you look at the equipment that they had at the time, he's totally correct. It's no longer correct, right? So I don't know, you know, you know, if Dave Fresnel listens to this, I still recommend piecing the chapters out to uh, different subject matter experts, you know, like the chapter on whatever hand lines, you know, if Aaron was willing to do it, uh, 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 application, you know, if Aaron was willing to do it, that'd be a good chapter for that guy. Maybe I'd be a good chapter on the hose. I could update the hose chapter. But, you know, if you look at Fresnel's book and you go through the chapters, you go like, man, wouldn't it be great if this dude updated this chapter and that dude updated that chapter? And ultimately it's his book. But, you know, if I was going to spend a grand or so on an out-of-print book, uh, that would be the one I'd buy. Perfect. I think you just found Sounds like we got to get a hold of Fornell. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you, can, uh, maybe you can write the next book. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> well, you've done plenty so far. Uh, we're coming yeah. up on, on two hours. Um, we can't say enough. We appreciate you coming on. We're we're just blown away at the information you have. Uh, we appreciate you sharing it with us and sharing it with the other folks. Uh, we've been kind of side texting throughout the whole podcast, just uh, talking about having you on for part two, for sure. There's just so much more we want to get into. I know other folks just want to hear more. Um, can you kind of tell folks how they can get a hold of you or are you on anywhere social media wise or your website at all? Yeah. Uh, uh, my website is, and by the way, I'm not tech savvy. Um, uh, Jesse Wooten, Dave Sprague, um, from fire nuggets and someone from Colorado basically made this as a Christmas present for me and paid for the first couple of years. So that's why it isn't updated regularly because I keep telling myself I'll learn how to add articles to it and stuff. I haven't done it. So it's just, uh, uh, www.hydrant2nozzle.com. Um, then there's a, uh, Legear Engineering FD Consulting page, some a little more act, active on on Facebook. Um, I think both of them have my home phone number. The best way to reach me is via email, uh, Dennis at hydrants, numeral two, 
uh, nozzles.com. So, um, so the email's probably best, but I, I know there's probably a lot of people that listen to this and the guy, this guy spent countless hours on the phone with me and whatever. So, um, and I know Grant can speak to this, uh, uh, I don't know how long ago was that now, Grant? Five years ago when you were buying supply hose? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had some yeah. issues. You so, helped us out quite a bit. Yeah. So, like, you know, uh, I've been doing this for quite a bit of time and probably I kind of want my business model to self extinguish. You know, when I, I'm getting close to 50, 50 would have been my 30th, 31th year in the fire service uh, and the operational stage. I was one of those guys that, uh, uh, you know, was saving money, paying my house off. And the goal was uh, 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 to retire early, early and uh, and uh, uh, have a good life after retirement. Because uh, I've seen it a lot in Oakland. Guys, like, max out their retirement, and, they, and then they, they stay a little bit longer, and they uh, retire, and they end up uh, having cancer, or they end up, uh, you know, dying of a heart attack with three or four years into your uh, into their retirement. So, you know, to me, I would say like, you know, uh, you know, focus on, uh, taking care of yourself, focus on, uh, you know, increasing your job knowledge, being the best firefighter you can focus on your health. And, uh, you know, it should be to me, it should be this, this combat thing that we made a reference to fire attack. You know, maybe we don't deserve the same 20 year and out anymore. as like a combat troop. But it should be like, you know, 25, 30 years and out, and you should have a good retirement. You know, that's uh, one of the reasons a lot of people look at this. You're not going to make a ton of money. There's going to be some sort of defined benefit pension. There's going to be some sort of good life at the end. And, and key to that is, is uh, having good job knowledge, you know, being safe on the fire ground, but being tactically aggressive, you know, uh, taking, you know, take risks where they need to be taken. But, uh, but, you know, focus on the long game, you know, and that's kind of where I'm at. Even right now, even doing this, and if people watch me on Facebook, I, I think I flew 140,000 air miles one year. Uh, you know, eventually I'm going to stop doing this. So I'm, I'm doing succession planning, you know, Andy Staccato out there. Uh, you know, Guzzi was already doing the stuff. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, I kind of want like a pump forward type program. I have permission to use that from Aaron. You know, he's like, call it pumps forward. You know, I don't know if we'll call it that, but, uh, you know, there's Alex Faber in Richmond, Virginia. Um, there's people on the West Coast, you know, Andy Murtaugh and stuff. Eventually, there has to be some sort of national cadre of people that correct this big vacant hole in the American Fire Service. American Fire Service really does hand lines pretty good now. And I would say if you look back 20 years ago before Andy Fredericks really got involved in that whole cadre and Dave McGrail, it was all over the map and vendor driven. And now it's not vendor driven. It's not all over the map. And we're facing a physical problem. And, you know, some people bash the ULFSRI and I've been in, on two tech panels now, but you look at it, they chose 150 gallons and 160 gallons in it. And they chose 250 for the commercial and 265. So, you know, um, that is really experiments done for the American fire service. So, that's my goal in the next three or four years, have that kind of flushed out and uh, let those guys run with it. That's perfect. Um, I can probably speak for the majority of the American fire service. We appreciate what you're doing. I think you've really opened some folks eyes and 
just got the ball rolling, I think, in a few years. You've passed your information on to enough people that I think we'll be able to carry on the message. Um, anything else you want? That's the goal. Yeah, well, I, I, I think you're doing it. You're, you're getting it out there. I can promise you that because um, you're at least getting the discussion started at the kitchen table and most firehouses, volunteer, career, combination, whatever. Uh, we've had plenty of them, whether they've been heated or not. But uh, we've we had a discussion. We're trying to move forward, I know, at least in my place. So um, anything else you want to add before you go? All right, man. Well, thanks. This is a good good use of my uh, uh, July 10th here. I'm going to go try to get some stuff fixed on my truck, and uh, and I'll talk to you guys later. Awesome. We appreciate it, Dennis. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, no Dennis. problem. Thanks, pal. All right, bye.